Come with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. If you're having trouble remembering where Zechariah is, find the Gospels, Matthew, turn left, go back towards the Old Testament, about a dozen pages or so, and you will be at Zechariah 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Let me read the passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 10 through 14. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is the living word of the living God. Would you bow with me, please? We thank you, our Father, that this word is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not cut the flesh, but it cuts the soul. And so it goes into the very depths of our being and cuts out what should not be there and then replaces it with a heart that has been renewed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And makes us capable of doing things that please and honor you. This is remarkable. Astoundingly remarkable. Overwhelmingly remarkable. Not that just you saved sinners. But that you saved me. And all of us can say that. For we peer into our hearts and we see the sinful inclinations and the wrestlings and the difficulties and the failures and the untold numbers of sins that have been committed against you. And you loved us anyway. And you saved us anyway. It's a reminder that it's not about us. It's always about you. It's always a demonstration of your magnitude, your glory, your wonder. And we're going to hear another salvation story again this morning. And might it drive us to deep gratitude. Might it drive us to hopefulness. 
And might it drive us to worship as we culminate our time together this morning at the table of the one who redeems, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so might you be pleased to change us. And might you be pleased to be worshipped by us as we hear your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John Piper writes about the unlikely conversion of a particular sinner. The story of Tokichi Ishii, a man who was hanged for murder in Tokyo in 1918. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times. He was known for being a cruel man, as cruel as a tiger, it was said. On one occasion, after attacking a prison official, he was gagged and bound, and his body was suspended in such a way that his toes barely touched the ground. But he refused and stubbornly refused to say that he was sorry for what he had done. Just before being sentenced to death, Tokichi was sent a New Testament by two new, two Christian missionaries, a Miss West and a Miss McDonald. After a visit from Miss West, he began to read the story of Jesus' trial and execution. His attention was riveted by the sentence, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That singular sentence transformed his life. I stopped, he said. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. Tokichi was sentenced to death and accepted it as, quote, the fair, impartial judgment of God. And now the word that had brought him to faith also sustained his faith in an amazing way. So near the end of his life, again, Miss West directed him to the words of 2 Corinthians 6, 8 to 10, concerning the suffering of the righteous. And the words moved him deeply. And again, he wrote this. As sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. People will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I am daily awaiting the execution of the death sentence. This is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell six feet by nine feet in size, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Day and night I am talking with Jesus Christ. It's an astounding story of God's grace. We love stories like that, don't we? How God interjects himself into someone's life and you said, that person you brought to faith? Astounding grace. Some of you are living that kind of story. And as you have shared your stories with others around you, that's been the response what magnanimous grace that God has saved you. But of all, the only God could do that salvation stories. I think there's one 
that stands far above all the rest. It is the story of Israel's salvation. We know that God promised to save Israel. That promise goes back as far back as Genesis chapter 12. Yet even then, in the promise to Abraham, in the first three verses of that chapter, it seemed an improbable story. Would God really save this nation? Would he really make the nation? And then would he really save them? Do you remember what Moses said about the nation of Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In this most improbable story, God saved Israel and will yet save Israel. Why would God save Israel? Why would he pour out this magnanimous love on them? Because if you could summarize the story of Israel in one sentence, it could be that Israel has always been rebellious against God. In fact, Moses says that very thing. Deuteronomy 9, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. There's a commendation for salvation, isn't there? Why would he choose them? Why would he save them? And yet, he has. He's promised to save Israel. And save her, he will. That is the promise of Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 to 14, that I want to look at with you this morning, that I've summarized this way. In his sovereignty, God will save his people, Israel, spiritually. He will. It's not just that he will save them physically. We saw that last week. But he will save them spiritually. And the entire nation will be saved. We talk about a Christian nation here, and what are we hoping for? 10% or 15% or maybe 20? None of us thinks that the entire nation is going to follow after Jesus Christ, but on that day, all Israel will be saved. In an act of grace, the entire nation will repent and turn to faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God will forever have a redeemed people for his own, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant and all the other covenants that flow from it. And just how will God do that? Zechariah points to three provisions for Israel's salvation. Three manners, means that God uses to save Israel. Three provisions in Israel's salvation, spiritual salvation that God has promised. The first of them is given to us in verse 10. If you're following along in the outline, um, as is my custom, we're going to spend the vast majority of the time in verses 10 and 11, mostly in 10, 
And then we'll move quickly through the last portion of this section. So if you're looking at your watch and saying, how is he going to fit in communion and everything else this morning? Because he's only in the first three words of verse 10. That's the plan. Promise. First provision. God will save Israel. Zechariah has spoken frequently about the judgment that was being faced by Israel. We saw it. As far back as the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? That's looking back to the time of the Babylonian captivity. And the question is being asked, how long will you pour out your judgment? Will you continue to have your wrath? And we continue to see the judgment of God against Israel throughout this book, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. They made their hearts like flints so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And just as he called, they would not listen. So they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. Again, significant judgment. Chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. The terror from speak iniquity and the diviners See lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, go to Zechariah. Go pasture the flock that is doomed to slaughter. Go pasture them, take care of them, shepherd them. And they're doomed to be slaughtered. And we saw that theme all the way through chapter 11. Some of the judgment that we find in this book is judgment that has been passed, like the Babylonian captivity. Some of it is present in the day of Zechariah. Much of it, most of it, is future still. And all of it, whatever the judgment is, all of it demonstrates God's commitment to Deuteronomy 28 to 30. If you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. And the whole history of Israel is the history of that being fleshed out in their lives. The people suffered from ungodly leadership and oppressive leadership. They rejected God's benevolent rule and they experienced repeated discipline, just like the captivity that they had come out of in Babylon. And yet, in spite of this judgment, one of the themes that we have seen throughout this book in Zechariah is that God has not given up on his people. He has not violated his covenant. He has not broken the covenant that he has made with Israel. And so he would preserve his people physically. And we've seen that again all throughout this book. Chapter eight in this most astounding section about the promise of the millennial kingdom chapter 8 verses 3 and following thus says the lord i will return to zion and i will dwell in the midst of jerusalem then jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain and thus says the lord of hosts old men and old women will again sit on the streets of jerusalem each man with his staff in his hand because of his age and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. I'm coming back. I will be on my throne, and Israel will be in the land. They will be preserved. They will be saved. And we again, there are multiple examples throughout this book of how God is going to preserve his people, Israel, within the land, bring them to the land, and they will be preserved physically. And that has been the, 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 the bulk of what we have seen in chapter 12 so far. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, is all about that physical provision and salvation of the people of Israel. But now he shifts. It's not just the physical provision but the spiritual salvation of Israel. And again, we've, we've seen hints of that throughout this book. Chapter 2, verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming to you and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Verse 12. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 3. Judah was, excuse me, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Then he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes, spiritual salvation. Verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will grave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. All the iniquity removed. And he's obviously speaking there about the millennial kingdom and his promise to preserve his people spiritually. And again, we've seen this theme interwoven between judgment and Safety physically and now safety spiritually all through this book. And we're going to see it in the future as well. Not just in chapter 14, you know that that's where we're headed. But even in chapter 13, this theme is going to continue in that day. Verse 1, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. A fountain that washes away all sin, all impurity. Verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is, is tested, and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. And so we see this magnificent provision of God spiritually saving, redeeming His people Israel. And as we've made our way through chapter 12, one of the recurring themes in chapter 12 is the work of God for his people. And one of the ways that that's been denoted in this chapter is God's repeated emphasis on the fact that he will act. And so multiple times in this chapter, verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, and 10, we have these I will statements. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling. Verse 3, and it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. And on and on through the chapter, God's provision for Israel. And now the culmination, the last of the I will statements in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will. 
And what we're going to see in just a moment is that this is his spiritual provision for them. And all of these statements are a reminder that everything that God's people receive is not on merit. It's always on grace. And again, we're going to find that fleshed out in just a moment. But but it's always a reminder that God is acting for us. We who are incapable, unworthy, unable have one who is constantly acting on our behalf. That was true of Israel, and it is true of us as well. What is significant in verse 10 is the recipient of the one for whom God is acting. Who is God acting towards? Notice verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David... That phrase, the house of David, is used about 25 times in the Old Testament. And it generally refers to the Davidic line of rulers that will reign over the nation of Israel. It's God's kingly realm. It's, it's mess, it has a messianic overtone. At times it even refers to the Messiah himself. So when he says, I'm going to pour something out on the house of David, he says, I'm going to give a gift to those who are ruling over the people of Israel, but not just to the rulers, to the royalty, but notice this as well, but also on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, on the citizens, on the average Israelite, on, on the hoi polloi, on, on just the average guy in the streets. And you take those two terms together, and what you find is that God is acting on behalf of all of his people from the greatest to the least, from the leaders to the commoners. They will all experience and receive God's grace. He's not playing favorites. He's not overlooking anyone, but all will be the recipients of this gift. As one commentator has said in the remainder of Zechariah 12 and 13, the prophet sets forth as nowhere else in Scripture with such vividness and power the conversion of Israel to the Lord. Nothing in Israel's past history can be interpreted as the fulfillment of this passage. And this passage reminds us that God is going to pour out something on Israel, the gift of salvation, in such a magnanimous, powerful act that it will be clear to all this is God and God alone. It's a reminder to us that salvation is always a monergistic act. That is, God alone is acting to save His people. It's Him. And only him that will save us. It is him and only him that will save Israel. And how is it that he will do that? He does it. Middle of verse 10. By his spirit. God will save Israel by the spirit. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and of supplication. What God will do for Israel is that he will pour out his spirit. When he says pour out, he doesn't mean a little drizzle like a little dabble do. He means flood them 
with the Spirit. It's like standing under the Niagara Falls and trying to stay dry. You can't do it. It's this massive, overwhelming, comprehensive, sudden spillage of the Spirit of God on them. Now, if you were to read the commentators, you would find them just about evenly split on the next question about this text. He says, I will pour out on them the spirit of grace and supplication. And the question is, what's the spirit? Because in actuality, the word the is not in the Hebrew text. And Hebrew doesn't have capital letters. And so... The question is, is he talking about a spirit, like a spirit of man, or is he talking about the spirit as in the Holy Spirit of God? And I spent way too much time this week reading commentators about it and thinking about it and working my way through that. I've come to the conclusion that the way at least my Translation, the New American Standard has translated it, is the correct sense of it. It is the Holy Spirit of God. And I come to that for a couple of different reasons. One is the context of this passage is salvation. And when you talk about salvation, how is it that salvation is received? It comes by the Spirit of God who awakens men. So I think the context gives a hint at that. Similarly, when he says the spirit of grace and of supplication, it makes more sense to see those as descriptions of the spirit of God. That is, the spirit of God is gracious and the spirit of God produces questioning in the hearts of men that make them repent and turn to him in faith. Then it does to say a man's spirit is gracious or becomes gracious and a man's spirit asks And there's another reason I think it is this way, because that same language is used in other passages to denote the same thing. So uh, keep your finger in Zechariah. Look at Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39 is the end of an extended section about the battle of Gog and Magog, which is going to take place in the first half of the tribulation. And when those nations are defeated, God looks towards the end of the tribulation and he looks towards the redemption of Israel. And we see that in 39.25 where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. So, The nations have been defeated, and now he's looking towards the redemption, the final redemption of Israel. Now notice verse 29. And I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. In other words, it is the spirit of God that will bring about the redemption of Israel in that day. And it's the same language, the same verb, the same word spirit, And I think it just makes the most sense. We find a similar kind of a use in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, reminding us that it's God's Spirit that will save. Now notice what it is that this Spirit will do back in Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on them the Spirit of grace. 
He is a spirit who gives grace. This is not the typical word that you will find for grace in the Old Testament. The word here is a word that means something like commiseration. So that the Spirit of God looks at sinful man and he commiserates with them. We might say he has pity on them for their rebellion, for their sinfulness, for their being stuck. And they just can't get out on their own. And he responds to them by giving them grace to believe in him. He's not only a spirit of grace that gives grace, that responds in grace to a particular need, but he's also a spirit of supplication. That is, he produces supplication. He produces requests in God's people. So, so people are rebellious against God and they don't want God. Romans chapter 3 tells us there's none who seeks after good. There's none who does good. There's none who wants Him. And He gives them a spirit of questioning so that they turn to God in faith. What's interesting about those two words, grace and supplication, is that they both come from the same root word, And so they both have this overtone and sound of grace. So when the Spirit produces the grace for the questioning, the sense is that He will also give the grace that is being asked for. They ask for grace because He prompts it and He gives grace in response to their questioning. Grace is the blessing that comes only from God. And supplication is man's pleading for that grace. God gives him the longing for him. And then he provides the fulfillment of that longing. I can't. And he says, I know you can't. I will. So when Israel comes to be saved... They will be saved by this Spirit of God that comes and says, let me pour out my grace in response to the questions that you ask for salvation. It's just the way that you and I are saved. It's always about God's kindness. It's always about God giving us the desire for Him that we would not otherwise have and then answering us and saying, let me show you the extent of my grace towards you. God will save Israel. God will save Israel by the Spirit. Thirdly, God will save Israel through faith and repentance. Israel is saved by the Spirit and by His grace. So no man saves himself. No man's faith saves him. It is always the Spirit of God that saves. Again, that's the monergistic act of God. That's God acting singularly or alone to save us. But he uses means. And what are the means? The means are repentance and faith. They're the the mechanisms. They're the means by which grace is received and by which grace acts to save. And we see that very clearly in this text. Notice, first of all, the nature of faith towards the end of verse 10. 
I will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication so that this is the end of the pouring out of the spirit of God with this purpose, with this result, rather, that they will look on me. That is, that they will be attentive to him, to God, to Yahweh. This is Yahweh of hosts. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the sovereign God who controls all of the armies in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. This is the one who is in authority over everything. They will look to him with confidence. They will stop looking at themselves and they will go to him and say, I can't, you must. I can't save myself. If I'm going to be saved, you must look, you must save me. And so they will look to him. Now notice how he, notice how he describes himself. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Remember, this is the Lord of hosts that's speaking. And he says that he's been pierced. The word pierce doesn't necessitate a crucifixion, but it is a violent act. And it is an act that, well, it doesn't always terminate in death, often does terminate in death. And it is almost always done in hostility and retribution. It's done in anger and in hatred. And the question then is, Think Zechariah, think 520 B.C., no Christ, no crucified Christ yet, not understanding what we understand. When they hear this, they have to be thinking, how can Yahweh be pierced? Who can fight against Yahweh in that way? Who can... Who can kill and attack Yahweh? In fact, some of them had to be saying, how dare he say that about Yahweh? This is the Yahweh of hosts. The one that controls the armies. How can he be pierced? They wouldn't understand it in all of its fullness until Christ's death. But there is a hint at it in the very next phrase. They will look on me, first person pronoun, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Third person pronoun. He shifts. There's a hint at the Trinitarian relationship. It's not explicit. I'm not saying that. But it's a hint that it's not the Father who receives the piercing. But it's a hint that the Son receives a piercing. And if they know their Bibles, they're going to remember Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs, He who, the suffering servant, the Messiah, our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. 
And by his scourging, we are healed. Now that word pierced in Isaiah 53 is a different word than pierced here in Zechariah 12. But the concept is the same. That the Messiah would be pierced for the sins of the people. And they are looking to him, the one who is pierced for their salvation. John makes it explicit that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. All these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierce. John 19, 37. Jesus is a fulfillment of this. And while it wouldn't be fully understood then on that day, the day of Armageddon, at the day of salvation, at the day in which they are preparing to head into the millennial kingdom, they will look, they will see the one whom they have pierced, and in faith, they will be saved. That's the nature of faith. They say, we can't. He must. We can't die for our sin and be saved. We must look to the one who can die for our sin so that we can be saved. But there's another component to this act of salvation that's going to come about in that day. It's not just the nature of faith, but notice the depth of repentance. It's not just faith acting alone, but it's faith acting in conjunction with repentance. And the rest of this passage from this point forward to the end of this chapter is filled with, saturated with the idea of grief and regret for sin. Five times in these remaining verses, the word mourn is used. Bitter weeping is used twice. Those those are words of sorrow and lament and grieving. And why are they grieving? They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him As one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him. Why are they weeping? Because they crucified the Lord of glory. He came offering a kingdom. And they said, crucify. Crucify. And the regret on that day is massive. When God's people say, our Lord came to us to save us, and we crucified Him. It is, Zechariah tells us, like the grief over the death of a firstborn. It is, It is always harsh to bury a child. It's an out-of-order death. And it just feels wrong for a parent to stand at the graveside of a child. I've never seen a grief and a death that was happy. All grief is hard. All death is hard. But the death of a child is especially hard, especially bitter. 
But the text goes beyond that. This isn't just the death of a child. This is the death of the firstborn. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was the one that carried the legacy of the family. The firstborn is the one who's going to receive the inheritance and and carry out the legacy and the responsibility of the family. And that one on whom the responsibility had been laid has now been taken away. And so who's going to carry out the responsibilities? And who's going to provide for the family? This isn't just bad news. This is catastrophic news. And it's not just catastrophic, but to lose your firstborn is considered at that time a dishonor and a curse. And it gets even worse. Because of all those who are born first, only Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Only Jesus is preeminent above everything else. Of all people created, Jesus is first. He's he's our older brother and will always be our older brother. He is always the firstborn. He is always preeminent. And they killed him. We can't begin to imagine what it would be like in that day. He says in verse 11, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Again, just trying to capture this idea of of how deep will the regret and the sorrow for their sin be. It'll be like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And again, there's lots of questioning about when that is and what that was. I believe that he's referring to the death of Josiah, the greatest king of Israel. It says about Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, Verse 25, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. What? That's an astounding statement. Of all the kings that ruled before him, there was none like Josiah. And then he says, nor did any like him arise after him. He's the greatest of all the kings. Those that came before and those that came after, he supersedes them all. And when he died, it tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 24. So his servants took him out of his chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. And he was buried in the tombs of his father's. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the book of Lamentations. Our greatest king is gone. What will we do? That gives an inkling of the kind of grief that will be expressed on that day. They rejected the Messiah. And now as they come in repentance and faith, they are broken hearted. Feinberg has noted about this. It is not just it is not so much a mourning for the act that was committed, the crucifixion of Christ, but for the person involved they're horrified 
that they've acted against Yahweh. They're grieved. And, and, and brothers and sisters, there's all kinds of grief. And this is godly grief, godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us a godly kind of sorrow that produces repentance. And on that day, that will happen. Notice one more facet of this repentance, and that is notice the breadth of the repentance. Who will grieve and who will repent? Verse 12, and the land will mourn every family. Who will grieve? Everyone. No one will be accepted. That word family is, repla- is, uh, is translated in a few places, something like uh, chief or leader, referring to the head of a family or head of a clan. Here, the sense probably is not just not that, that it's the head of a clan, but it is the clan itself, the family itself. Every family, all the family. And when he's talking about family, he's not just talking about an individual family like Terry and Regine or when our children are home, Terry and Regine and their children. He's talking about the extended family. That's the ends clan. And he's talking about all of them. And not just all of them, but there's a there's a... Something going on in the text. You can't see it in the English. It's translated every clan, but it it really says something like family by family or clan by clan. And it, and it means every single one. There's this repetition of terms all the way through this text. Family, 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 meaning it's all. And now he defines it. Every family by itself, every family will gather together and repent including the family of the house of David. Who's that? That's the royalty. That's the leaders. Who else? The family of the house of Nathan. Who's that? Well, too long to go into here, but there is something called the Jeconiah curse in the Old Testament. Jeconiah or Jehoiachin was such an evil king that the the, the kingdom was taken away from him and it was granted to the line of Nathan. So Nathan was another son of David. Not uh, he was a younger or a different son from Solomon, but Solomon was the one through whom the kingdom ran until he got to Jehoiachin, the last king before they went into the Babylonian captivity. And God says he's so wicked, there won't be another king to reign on the throne of David that comes from Jehoiachin. It transferred to Nathan. And so here he says the house of Nathan. So whether you're in the kingly realm of Solomon or the kingly realm of of Nathan, it doesn't matter. They will all repent. All the royalty, all the leaders. The family of Levi, not just the royalty, but the priestly line. All the religious leaders, including the family of the Shimeites. Who are they? They're the ones who are coming from Levi. But again, not from the tribe, or not from the line that gets to be the priests on a daily basis. So they're in the line of Levi, but they're not of the priestly family, and they also will repent. In other words, anyone that has to do with religious leadership in the land. And not only them, but notice all through the text, it's saying, and their wives, and their wives, and their wives, and their wives. I think there's four of them. 
Four times. What does he mean by that? He means that it's not just the families that are gathered, but there's a sense in which it's individual. It's not just it's not just the leader of the family that's saying we repent, but individually they're pulling apart from one another and saying, I need to repent. And so even in this most dynamic and close of intimate relationships, a relationship between husband and wife, the wife stands alone on her own and says, I repent. And you've just got this massive conversion of families all turning to the Messiah. The rejection of God as king over Israel and the rejection of Christ as Messiah over Israel was widespread. Brothers and sisters, the conversion of Israel will be just as widespread. He will save his people. To talk about the repentance of the nation in such a comprehensive way, is to tell us that on one day the entire nation will be saved and the covenants that God has made with His people Israel will be fulfilled. God is, excuse me, Israel is God's chosen people and to this point they've rejected Him, but one day they will be saved. Which is why Romans 11 is so important. It's a reminder. So all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove all ungodliness from Israel. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so helpful for us. God's salvation plan is for Israel. And God's salvation plan for Israel and the nations will be accomplished. Israel to this day, if you were to go to the Middle East today, you would find Israel not in love with the Messiah, but one day she will be. We tend to look and think about the salvation of Israel and we jump quickly to Revelation 4 and 5, the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be saved. And that's gloriously true. The Gentiles will be saved. But brothers and sisters, Israel's first. And they will be saved. How is this hopeful for us? What is the hope of God's salvation? Four quick points. One, God still saves. The God who promised to save Israel in the Old Testament and will yet save them is still the same today. He is still gracious. He was gracious to Israel to take her back to the land after the Babylonian captivity in Zechariah's day. He was gracious to send Christ as her Messiah. He will be gracious to save Israel at the end of time. And he is the same today. God still stimulates our prayers. God still provokes us and compels us to pray and to seek salvation. And God is still a prayer-hearing God and a prayer-answering God. His Spirit still provokes our need of Him and answers us with His grace. God still saves. And that's good news for you and me. God's Spirit still functions And still saves. His power has not been emptied. He is still sufficient for salvation. 
How's that hopeful for you? It is hopeful in this, that your father, your daughter, your cousin, your co-worker, your neighbor is not beyond the power of Christ to save him. It's not over. And I know some of you have relationships, as do I, that you look at and you say, there's no hope. I don't see this person ever getting saved. And the story of the Spirit of God saving Israel is hopeful for us that He can save anyone. He is not powerless. Thirdly, God still saves by faith and repentance. Faith means that we believe that only Jesus can forgive us of our sins and make us worthy to stand before God and and receive and claim His righteousness. The standard of God demands a perfect righteousness and no man is righteous except Jesus Christ alone. And if we're going to be saved, we must believe that He has taken away our unrighteousness, our sin, and imputed, accounted to us, granted to us, attributed to us His righteousness, His perfection. There's nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves and to receive this It's only by faith. You've got to believe. And not only in believing, but you must also repent. To repent means to regret, to have sorrow for your sin. It means coming to Christ. We're saying, I'm done with my sin. I don't want my sin. I hate my sin. I want Christ to save me. And he will. That was how God saved in the Old Testament. It's how God saves today. Nothing's changed. His plan of salvation has always been the same. It's always by grace through faith alone in Christ, the Messiah alone. It's the only means of salvation. If you want to be saved, you must believe and you must repent. The question simply today is, do you have faith and do you repent? Have you repented? Have you turned away and said, I don't want this anymore. I do want this. If you have repented and have believed, then that's what you have. If you haven't, oh, brother, friend, I urge you and compel you, please believe today. Finally, God is faithful and God is trustworthy, even in a broken world. He is not inhibited by any power in the world or any rebel against him. He will judge every sin and sinner. And he will save the most resistant heart in Israel. He will be trustworthy then. He is trustworthy now. You can believe him. Father, we thank you for the reminder of the power and authority of your salvation. A salvation that has come. A salvation that is coming and a salvation that will come. And we thank you, Father, not only for this reminder in this text, but we thank you for this reminder at the table of communion. And we ask that as we come to this table that we would remember Jesus Christ, that we would remember his cross work on our behalf, And that we would be stimulated to further repentance as believers. 
further faith as believers and further delight as believers. Oh, Father, might we come to this table washed, cleansed, renewed with joy. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know Christ, would you work in them so that they might respond with repentance and faith this morning so that they too can come to this table at another time and say thank you for what you've given me. We commend ourselves to you, thanking you for this table in Christ's name. Amen.